So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Happy New Year. Happy 2020. Well, that's a weird thing to say. It's not 2020. Is it 2020? What are people going to say now? Oh, I don't know. I think the most important thing is that this is a new decade and I'm, I'm sick again, as you might have, as you might be able to hear. Um, this is a, this is a new decade. And I think that a lot of people from what I've seen on social media and stuff, a lot of people are like really um, pumped up as, as to like the future possibilities of what they're going to be able to achieve. Yeah. I think there's a lot going on on Instagram at the moment of like, looking back to 2009 and then 2019 and where they've progressed so far. Um, I was thinking this morning, it'd be fun to do a 2019, 2029 and almost kind of plan where you're going to be in that, that yeah. time ahead and then try and work back and work your way how far to get there. Because I thought that'd be really interesting if you could post that now to be able to look back in it in 10 years time and see where it, see where it got you. Yeah, definitely. I, I did a lot of sort of reflection over the, over the Christmas break and, and I looked at, kind of how much we achieved this decade um, because obviously we started our first business yeah. in 2010. So, so this decade has been absolutely massive growth for us. But then I looked back on the decade prior and from 2000 to 2010, like those were, that was my darkest time. And I mm. was, I was lost. I lost both my sisters. I was diagnosed with um, chronic fatigue syndrome. 2000 to 2010 were like really, really bad for me, really miserable. And um, I think it just goes to show like, how much is is possible and how much of a turnaround you can make from the dark place to actually like positivity and and like I'm so excited going into the next 10 years because I just think like time is so powerful and putting like when you put effort into something like we're it's literally before it was a guess like at the beginning of 2010 it was a guess of like oh if we put time into this we could make it successful it's not a guess anymore we've we've done 10 years so we know we know what to do. Like, so now we just know like, oh, put our time into whatever we're working on for the next 10 years. And we know that they will be successful because it's just that, that thing of consistency, time, patience, and yeah. just, and things paying off down the road. Cause so it's proven now, isn't it? It's like before, yeah, it was just, let's hope that this works going forward. Whereas now we've done it and now we know we could do it again and again and again. And we've got the confidence to go and do that. And I think that's one thing that's really grown, especially for me over the past 10 years, is just my confidence. And it's amazing even if it, like 10 years is a long time to so look back over that period is huge but even just looking back over the last like two or three years there's been huge huge changes there as well so it's really exciting to know that as long as we keep learning and keep growing we will keep getting better and we will keep evolving and like we're going to look back in 10 years time to where we are now and be like oh my god that was a massive leap it's not going to be like we've almost we've hit that 99 percent already and in the next 10 years, we're just going to get to a hundred. It's going to be like a significant increase to where we are now, which is really weird to think. But I think going into this next decade with that positive mindset of like, I'm going to keep learning, I'm going to keep getting better. 
and I'm going to just kind of make myself look back in 10 years time and think, I can't believe I was that bad at what I'm doing then. Yeah. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. But what's, what's become clear to me over the past year of doing uh, Creative Rebels and, and listening to the stories of our guests is that I hope that people listening just because it's, it's one guest after the other, after the other, after the other, that is just, they're all saying the same things. They're saying, yeah, yeah I, I had this kind of blind faith and I put it into what I was doing and I spent the time and I did the hard work. And along the way, I worked out the clever things that I could do, how I could be different from everyone else and how I could like tread a different path and try something new to get attention to what I was doing. But really the, the kind of, the journey is the same. The journey is, I got obsessed with something. I put all of my time and my heart and my love and my energy into it. And then results came and they came like further down the road. Like it was the patience yeah. that got me there. Yeah. I was listening to Ray Dalio on a podcast recently and he was talking about his biggest, like he's massively successful, runs like the 10th biggest company in the world. I think it is. He wrote that book Principles, right? Yeah. Ray, he wrote, Ray yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's the author of the book Principles. And he was talking about how his biggest kind of, hack to success I suppose was the fact that every single thing has been done before like nothing's new and if you want to learn anything all you have to do is look at what people have done before and that'll basically pave out going forward it's like yes people might create new styles of art and things might change like a little bit visually but the actual process that they've gone through thousands of people have done it before and I think it's, once you realize that it's like well go look at how they've done it and I think that's where the show's been really enlightening for the fact that everyone has done it and it's crazy how many patterns we've put together over the past years of just seeing the well oh that's really similar to what this person did and that's really similar to what that person did and actually everyone's kind of following the same path like the start and end are the same but they've gone down slightly different journeys to get there but they've always ended up in the same place and all the paths have been pretty similar it's like if they've all been walking through forests there's all been trees in those forests just trees might just look slightly different yeah, every single person is is on their own unique journey, but there are so many similarities that you can pull from other people's experiences. So I think that is is really important. Um, so this is is a time of positivity for a lot of people. It's a time of looking forward to the future and planning. Hopefully you guys have listened to our little mini course that we've put out, um, six lessons, six episodes of what we do to, uh, to start any sort of project, um, dealing with kind of a lot of mindset stuff, but then also like practical things of like getting your first clients and all of that sort of stuff. So um, those are in the archives now and you can go and listen to those. And we like, yeah, we recommend you maybe listen to them again in June, maybe listen to them again in like six months time and, and, and refresh yourself on and and just make sure that you're you're taking those steps to make whatever it is you're doing um, successful. There's really no time limit on those things. That little course we put together, they take into account all of the guests that we've talked to this year and all of our experiences and kind of combine them into a kind of short little six part series, I suppose. Um, so yeah, also if you know anyone who would get benefit from those, like share it with them because there's a lot of people who don't listen to this show yet. And it would be great, a great little start, especially because it is the new year and people want to get started with something. Going through these six steps that we put together in this little course will really, really help them. Yes, January is a time of, of reflection and uh, New Year's resolutions. And, uh, and for a lot of us, like cutting things out, I know a lot of people... Yeah, that's definitely what a lot of people do for their resolution. There's, they say, I'm going to stop eating chocolate. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop doing one of these many things. Yeah, I certainly remember last year, there was a lot of memes kind of uh, flying around of 
when it gets to the second week in January, third week in January, then most of those resolutions get dropped. Yeah. Um, and obviously gyms get a huge surge of people signing up and people who have done dry January, maybe they don't make it all the way to the end. So I think there's a lot to be said for resiliency and, and sticking to something. Yeah, it goes back to the episode we had recently about motivation, how everyone has that motivation to go forward in that the first start of the year but they don't have the self-discipline to actually carry on i think that a lot of that comes down to as well as people setting themselves goals that are just so massive like i'm not going to do this for a year which is quite huge whereas if you said i'm not going to do this for a week got to the end of that week and said i'm going to well that went well i'm going to do it for the next week and then the next week and the next week and take it in smaller chunks rather than thinking it's going to be this huge thing that might be unachievable. And I suppose with, with Claire's story, she realised how much damage she was doing to her life with alcohol. So I guess all of us feel like, oh, maybe I should go to the gym more and maybe I should eat more vegetables or maybe I should be a bit more healthy. But I suppose when you realise that you're you're actually like really putting your life at risk um, by some of the things that you're doing, that's when that will give you a lot more motivation to actually see through. Because Claire's been sober for years now. And her life is now so much better because of that. Yes, so this week's guest is Claire Pooley. Claire Pooley is a blogger and a novelist. Her book, The Sober Diaries, is an account of her journey from drinking over a bottle of wine a day to now being completely sober, which is an incredibly difficult task. Claire coped with this by blogging her experiences, all of the ups and downs, the trials and tribulations of becoming sober. And through that, she built a network of contacts that supported her through her journey. Blogging also reignited her love for writing. And Claire's first novel, The Authenticity Project, is out in spring 2020. In this episode, we talk about conquering addiction, making sober less shameful, and the best way of being mindful. And what I discovered is the best way of, of doing mindfulness is creativity, just concentrating on the task in hand and not thinking of anything else. Hi Claire. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here with you guys. Um, so I've just finished reading your book, The Sober Diaries. Very much enjoyed it. And one thing that really stuck out to me is that people have to Google, am I an alcoholic? Mm. It's like there's not this set thing where you go, oh, now I'm an alcoholic. It's like this kind of wonder of, am I an alcoholic? Is this too much? Yeah, you know, it's one of the things I think is a real signal that you might have a problem with alcohol is whether you've ever googled am I an alcoholic and you know I used to do it quite a lot um, so and I think I think the reason you do it is because you know I used to try and persuade myself that I wasn't that stereotypical alcoholic because then I wouldn't have to quit drinking so we all have in our minds what an alcoholic looks like and it's normally somebody who's drunk on a park bench and they're yeah, drinking methylated spirits out of or, or special yeah. brew out of a a paper bag and you know and I thought well if I don't look like that then I'm not an alcoholic and therefore I'm okay and we sort of think that it's black and white you're either a normal drinker or you're an alcoholic and there's nothing in between and actually what I've I've learned subsequently is there are whole shades of grey and you know the question isn't really are you an alcoholic it's is alcohol messing up your life in any way shape or form yeah, yeah and as soon as you 
see that it is, then that's when it's time to take action. Yeah. And you know what? It's much easier to jump off that slippery slope when you're halfway down it rather than when you're right at the bottom. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I was asking the wrong question, I think, for, for many years. Yeah. So you talk, you talk in the book about how, I guess it's drinking culture and how what an influence like Bridget Jones was on you. Mm, not just Bridget Jones. It was also, you know, the girls from Sex and the City and the absolutely fabulous girls with their bolly and, yeah. you know, and, um, and the ladettes. You know, I, I grew up in the era of the ladette and it was sort of, I felt like it was sort of almost like my feminist duty to keep up with the lads, you know. So, you know, it was... It, it it felt like everybody else was was drinking the way that I was, and I think for a while everybody was. So, yeah, and I suppose working in in advertising, which I, like in your early career you were working for advertising. I mean, that's that's a, an industry that we're sort of very heavily involved in, mm. and it's yeah powered powered by booze yeah and you know we had we had a um, a bar in the office and you know the uh, after five o'clock everybody piled down to the bar and all the work and discussions from then on happened over drinks and I had a huge expense budget and it was my job to take clients out and get them ratted on a regular <laughs> basis so you know yeah it was it was totally powered by alcohol and you know I think the creative industries I think creative people you know often use alcohol as a way of sort of switching off our brains you know when you have that feeling like everything is going round and round in your head far too fast and alcohol is is a dimmer switch and it's a very easy way of just calming the noise yeah that's a really interesting way of putting it yeah because it's uh, it's escapism isn't it yeah and and it's very it's a very quick and actually now I see it's a very lazy way of of turning the noise off but and what I've realised now is that, you know, I used alcohol really, I guess, to sort of blur all the edges. But when you blur all the difficult bits, you also blur all the great bits. So, mm. you know, I turn the dimmer switch down on everything, you know, all the good bits as well as all the bad bits. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mentioning Ladakh culture there, everything is kind of designed against us, isn't it? I mean, even because you mentioned in the book about being being a mum. Mm. And all of the sort of memes online are like, oh, one yeah. o'clock and, and all of those sort of things. And even like you can even buy merch and stuff that's... Yeah, yeah. Like, and I really believe in like self-signaling, like affirmations and things like that. If you mm. have some like cushions on your sofa that say wine o'clock, then that's a visual prompt that you're living with every single day. Mm. That's, I think that's as soon as, as soon as you've got that, then you start to identify yourself, part of who you are is the drinking as well because you get a lot of people who will be really into like gin gin's a very like trendy thing that like mums and girls will be like oh i'm and i love gin yeah and yeah it almost becomes part of who they are because i suppose that's probably signaling to other people that oh i'm this fun person yeah i drink and do these well you know it became totally bound up in the mum whole mum culture so when my eldest daughter was was born and she's 16 now to sort of put it in context you know back then being a mum was all about you know doing it perfectly so it was all Gina Ford and you know all the sort of you know the books about 
routines and how to sort of how to do everything perfectly. And then there was a huge backlash against that, thank goodness. And all the mummy bloggers sort of came on the scene and it was all about actually motherhood is hard and this is the reality and it's not that easy. And, you know, we're all just muddling along and doing the best we can. And our reward for all of that is wine o'clock. So the whole wine o'clock culture came out of that whole sort of, you know, real motherhood thing. And it was it was our me time. You know, it was the way that we rewarded ourselves at the end of the day. And we all felt like we bloody deserved it. And, you know, Probably do. Yeah, yeah. We do. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I think people who are still doing that, you know, I, I'm not one to judge at all because I did it for years and years and years. It's just, uh, you know, it has a habit of creeping up on you. So it almost feels like the the world is against you, really, in that because I, I find it the same with with social media apps and things like that, of, of everything is designed to to fight against our human nature. And I mean, you obviously did a lot of research for the book. One of the things that I found the most fascinating was the discussion on dopamine. Mm. And so, I mean, I don't know if you want to go a little bit into what, like what happens when you actually drink. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, there's a theory that, that people who are e- become easily addicted to things are people who, who just love do- the dopamine hit. They, they have, a, they're sensitive to dopamine and, um, you know, dopamine is like the feel good chemical in your brain that your brain produces. Um, and, uh, for, given a number of triggers and one of those triggers is alcohol. And if you drink alcohol, your brain is totally flooded with dopamine. So, you know, you get a really good sort of feel good sensation. And, and that's why it becomes addictive because we love that feeling. But the problem with with getting dopam- a dopamine hit from alcohol is that your brain gets so used to sort of being flooded with dopamine that it stops producing dopamine naturally to make up for the amount that it's producing through the, the booze. So, so your sort of sober state becomes rather depressed because... You, you've stopped, you know, your brain isn't, isn't producing that dopamine itself and you can only feel good when you, you start drinking again. So actually we think that the alcohol makes us feel good, but actually drinking over time just makes you feel more and more generally depressed. So, you know, when you quit drinking, gradually your brain sort of gets back to an equilibrium where you feel much happier all the time, which is, to me, was a real revelation, you know. And and also what you learn is that there are other things you can do that give you a dopamine hit. So, you know, one of them, one of my big vices now is cake. Sugar <laughs> is, is gives you a really big dopamine hit. So you have to, if you quit drinking, you have to watch the sugar because you end up craving sugar. Um, you know, any other, um, you know, you have to watch any addictions because they're like, they all have the same dopamine effect. But um, exercise, music, dancing, um, avocados, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things you can you can do that give you that dopamine hit instead. I'm addicted to avocados. <laughs> Are you? Well, I don't, there you no, go. I, don't, I don't think that's going to be a novel anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, so then I suppose we get on to the the difficult question of drinking in moderation and because that's of that would be the nirvana I suppose yeah you know I tried to do that for years Um, and I think most people who eventually quit drinking altogether have tried to moderate because nobody none of us want to stop drinking initially because 
you know, I mean, I drinking was my thing. You know, I defined myself as the sort of, you know, the bon viveur and the party animal. And, you know, I, I you know, I was it, it was what I did. And the idea initially of not being able to drink again, you know, I found horrifying and I thought my life would be totally over. And, you know, I didn't want to stop altogether. I just wanted to be able to drink less. So, you know, to put it in context, by this stage, I was drinking a bottle of wine every day. And at the weekends, I was drinking probably two bottles of wine. And if I was going out on a bender, I might be drinking three. So, you know, I was drinking about 10 bottles of wine a week, which you can't do without having quite major sort of effects on your life. You know, and I just wanted to be able to cut down so I could drink a glass of wine a day. You know, I thought, yay, that would be that would be manageable. Mm. But, you know, what I found is is that, you know, there are two types of people in this world. There are people who are good at moderating and there are people who are all or nothing. Mm -hmm. And my husband, damn his eyes, is a moderator. So he can do things just a little bit. He can have a glass of wine once a day and that's it. And I can't do that. You know, I can't do that with alcohol. I can't do it with sugar. I can't do it with crisps. Um, you know, I I can't do it with... But on the upside, you know, I'm all or nothing about love, about friendship, about creativity, about writing, you know, all sorts of other things as well. So, you know, I think if you... Anyone who's listening to this who sort of, you know, is thinking, God, I wish I was the sort of person that could moderate. There are great things about being an all or nothing person. The yeah. downside is you just have to watch yourself with addictive substances. <laughs> um, so what I learned is the more I tried to moderate, the more it, I became obsessed. So, you know, I would set myself rules and I'd say, you know, I will only drink at weekends or I will only drink one glass a day or I will alternate every alcoholic drink with water and try to do that. And or I will um, I will only drink when I'm out. I won't drink at home. And I set all these rules. And within a few days, I'd have broken whatever rule I'd set. And all that would happen is that I would become more and more obsessed by what the rules were and whether I was keeping to them and, and how I could bend them. And I would have this little voice in my head that any anyone with any form of addiction will be familiar with. And that voice takes up so much space and it says things like, I deserve it. And, um, you know, I'll just have one and then I'll stop and I can know I can do it this time. And I didn't have anything yesterday, so maybe I can have double today. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And, you know, the best thing about quitting drinking is not having that voice in your head anymore because it's really boring. That, that voice is so hard to combat, though, because I think we we all have an internal narrative to ourselves, don't we? And I think we're very forgiving on ourselves because we're the hero of our own story mm. and justifying to yourself why something is a good idea or why something's not a good mm. idea. And really, you don't have your own best interests at heart when you're when that voice is talking to you yeah and I, I think part of the trick is realizing that the that voice isn't you it's separating yourself from the voice in your head if that doesn't make me sound too crazy I think it's not so, crazy because like <laughs> science wise yeah you, there are different voices in your head coming from the different parts of your yeah, brain yeah and the voice that's saying oh that's okay that's fine that's your more animalistic part of the brain being like give me this fucking dopamine hit because that's yes. what I want because that's what makes this part of my brain feel good. Yeah, it's your subconscious effectively rather than your conscious because it's not, you know, you're, you're being driven by something that is is much more primal. And, 
you know, and, and the way what I found really helpful is giving that voice a name. And I think a lot of addicts do this. And, um, you know, I call the voice the wine witch. And, <laughs> you know, and so when she started talking, I didn't see it as me. I saw it as my enemy that yeah. I had to I had to squash. And I knew that the only way to get rid of the wine witch was to deprive her of what she wanted. And that the longer she went without booze, the weaker she got. And eventually, you know, she would be completely vanquished. Um, But the minute I gave her what she wanted, she would come back in, you know, with all her strength. And, you know, and I found that a really helpful visualization. And, you know, I think if you're if you if you have any form of addiction, um, it's also really helpful for things like eating disorders. You know, being able to uh, being able to sort of see that voice as something separate from yourself is is really really helpful. Otherwise, you feel like you're constantly wrestling in with your own head, which is a really uncomfortable position mm, to be yeah. in. Yeah, I think yeah, understanding that I think is the key to so much of your any the way any people do anything is mm. like realizing that actually there are two parts of my brain and they are combating with each other. There's a good book called The Chimp Paradox. Yes, yes, Which exactly. yeah, talks about that, how you've got like your chimp brain, which is just your animalistic brain that's trying to do things for survival and just for that joy of it. And then you, but as soon as you know that exists, and you, mm. you can be like, okay, well, that's not me who's making that decision. It's mm. this other thing. And then so you just put it back in its box. And that's exactly what I was doing with a wine, witch is, is seeing it as separate and then you know how to deal with it. And it's really helpful. Giving it that name as well. I think it's really important. Yeah. It's like, as soon as you know what your issue is, yeah. give a name attached to that because then it's like, it's not just this chimp, it's this wine, witch. it's the mm. witch that's trying to stop, like basically forcing me to drink. Yeah. And you know what? The other thing I, I found is that, you know, the, those thoughts that are constantly going on you know going round and round your head in a loop the one of the best ways to to quiet them is mindfulness and you know so I did a lot of research into mindfulness and everybody you know every at the time everyone was talking about it and it was a great cure-all for sort of all sorts of you know um all sorts of of, of issues and um, and I tried meditating and I was bloody useless at it. You know? Join the club. <laughs> and I sat there for, you know, with, I tried all the apps and I tried everything. And, you know, and the more I tried not, you know, to still my brain, the more it would go crazy. And what I discovered is the best way of, of doing mindfulness is creativity. So, which I know you guys would understand. So whether, whatever your thing is, whether it's art, whether it's, for me, it was writing, you know, whether it's gardening or uh, yoga, it's it's doing something that puts you in a sort of state of flow. So you're not, you're just concentrating on the task in hand and not thinking of anything else. And that's why I started blogging because for me, writing was the way I stopped my brain going crazy and it helped me make sense of everything. And I guess you guys would would paint. Yeah, I almost feel like I've cheated life a bit for the fact that I've always loved and always drawn and always been creative and arty because growing up, it'd always be, okay, well, I'm going to go and do a drawing for six hours and you might, mm. your mind just switches off. Yeah, it's so good for you. Yeah, and I've always said to people how, yeah, if you sit and draw for hours, your mind just goes into this like lovely little state of like, you don't really think. Yeah. And that is mindfulness, but that's, that's a much, I think a much easier and a more productive way of doing mindfulness than just trying to meditate, which is, you know, it's really hard and you can only do for, you know, short periods of time, you know, short periods at a time. So Mm -hmm. um, there's been studies done on depression where they've looked at 
kind of taking drugs or taking like all these different alternatives of how you can cure it. Mm. And they found that mindfulness is slightly better than drugs. Like drugs are amazing for sorting out mm. in terms of like their actual effects of producing it. But mindfulness is just that slight bit better. Yeah. And with fewer side effects yes, and uh, you know, yeah, addiction yeah. issues. But, uh, and it's interesting that you say you've always done it because what a lot of people do is, is there's something that they're passionate about when they're a child and then life gets in the way. And, you know, I used to, when I was younger, I loved reading and writing and I, I carried on reading, but I stopped writing because I was just busy doing other stuff. And it wasn't until I quit drinking that I just had this sudden urge to write. And it was, you know, I felt like I'd refound my old friend. And interesting, when people talk to me about you know, sort of how to quit drinking. I often ask them what they were passionate about when they were a child, because if we if you quit something like drinking or any addiction, it leaves a big hole in your life. You need something to fill that hole with and something that gives you that state that we were talking mm. about. And often the clue is what you loved when you were a child. And for you, it was drawing. For me, it was writing. You know, other people, I remember a woman wrote to me who said that her big, she'd read what I talked, when it, what I said about, looking back to your childhood and her thing when she was a child was riding horses. She loved horses and she hadn't been near a horse for 20 years. So when she quit drinking, she found a local stables and she started riding again. She quit her job, set up her own stables. Now it's her whole life and she's never been happier. And, you know, so I, I think it's really important to remember what, what made you, what gave you joy when you were little, because that's a really good sign that that's something you shouldn't leave i think there's a really interesting debate there because like cause for us growing up there wasn't much to do when you were a kid so it's like you had mm. lots more time to fill and be a bit creative of how i'm going to fill this time but like today's generations growing up there's you're just doing stuff all the time you've got your phone you can flip through see four thousand images in a second and you're just constantly on like you're constantly always in the zone you, you don't have like the stillness maybe that you yeah. would have as when we were growing up so it'll be interesting to see as time goes on those kids won't be able to look back what to what they did as a kid because that yeah. would just be flicking through facebook or Instagram. i think you're right i mean I, I think there are downsides um but i think there are big upsides as well because you know they have so much at their fingertips that we never had so you know I look at my kids for instance and they do things that we never would have been able to do when when you know when we were teenagers or certainly not when I was like they make little videos the whole time and they add special effects and they put music on and they sort of you know they're they're creative in different ways because they have technology that we never had mm -hmm. um, I think what one of the big differences is their time their attention span is so much shorter. So, you know, you might have sat and drawn for hours, whereas I think our kids are more, you know, they're, they're so used to just doing things in short little sound bites that it'll be interesting to see where that yeah. leads them in there. Do they ever get stillness? Yeah. Or is it just kind of like a few seconds of quiet? Exactly, exactly. There's a lovely quote, the uh, creative adult is the child who survived. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, yeah, which I really love. But which is, yeah, which is everything that we've yeah, been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you think that without the blog, because you're, you're now completely sober and you don't drink at all, because mm. we talked about moderation. Do you think without the blog, you wouldn't have given up? Um, I, I hope I would have given up at some point, but I'm not sure I would have given up then, because I think what what you need 
when you quit drinking is some form of community and um, you need to go through a certain amount of sort of uh, of thinking. You need to, in effect, take yourself apart and put yourself back together again. And the blog allowed me to do both of those things. So through writing, I was able to work out, you know, who I was and where I wanted to be. And the blog, because it was, you know, online, found me a community of thousands and thousands of people like me all over the world. And, you know, that gave me what Alcoholics Anonymous gives people without me having to go to a church hall and, and yeah. you know, and, and say, my name's, you know, my name's Claire and I'm an alcoholic, which I had an issue with. I, I had an issue with the all the terminology and the imagery associated with... Um, with alcoholism. So I never refer to myself as an alcoholic. I refer to myself as an addict because I think language matters, you know. Mm. And I don't like the whole imagery of disease. And and I didn't like the thought that, you know, I was going to live the rest of my life defining myself by a negative, you know. So I define myself as a non-drinker or, you know, a clean drinker, not a an alcoholic. I just, you know, it may mean the same thing, but it's... Uh, you know, it, it feels more positive to me. And you didn't set out to have a million views on your blog page, which happened. Um, mm. You you just started, this was more like a personal diary, but it just happened to be online. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, initially I thought about just writing a diary again, because I used to write a diary when I was a teenager and I stopped in my 20s. And, and I thought actually it'd be really helpful to write a diary and just get my thoughts down on paper. And then I thought, hey, come on, this is 21st century, I should actually do it online. And you know, I had no idea how to even set up a blog. So I just Googled it, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> like every, you do with everything these days. And, you know, and I, I was very much and because I was too embarrassed to tell anyone what I was doing and I did the whole thing anonymously, I couldn't ask anyone for help. So it was very much a sort of, you know, I didn't even put any images on my blog for two years <laughs> because I wasn't sure how to. So it was just, <laughs> you know, it was just text and it was all anonymous and bizarrely and I didn't publicize it again because I I didn't want people to know who I was so it just spread through you know through word of mouth and through people just pointing other people in my direction and you know I'd had a million hits within the first year which was extraordinary given that I didn't publicize it yeah and you're certainly not doing SEO research and no, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> no I wasn't and I wasn't putting anything on social media you know, so so it just sort was of it, was it all completely organic through Google and through people just searching for yeah, their issue. Yeah, I mean the the only your... thing um, I mean I I found a, a couple of online communities and which I became active in and I I used to put my blog address on there, mm-hmm. but uh, but other than that it was just Google searches and again it was people you know googling am I an alcoholic and they would come across me so yeah. And people would share your posts as well, which I suppose really helped yeah. it grow. Yeah. So although I wasn't sharing them, other people were. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so you found you found your people, or they yeah. found you, I suppose. And you know, there's a, there's a great TED talk by uh, Johan Harry, um, and he says, uh, which is called "Everything You Thought You Knew About Addiction Was Wrong." And at the end, he says, "The opposite of addiction is connection," and that's very much how I felt. There was. 
you know, just just having, you know, because at the beginning I felt so lonely. I felt like I was the only person like me who had this sort of issue. And I thought I was going slightly crazy. And that, you know, if people knew what was really going on in my head, that nobody would ever want to be my friend ever again. And and it was, you know, through the blog that I realised that I absolutely wasn't alone. And I have, even now, I have messages every single day from people saying, I thought I was the only person who, sorry, I always get emotional when I talk about this. I thought I was the only person that felt like this until I found your blog or your book or your TED Talk or whatever. And that's why I wanted to, eventually, why I, I stopped being anonymous and wrote the book, because... I thought, actually, I don't want anyone ever to feel that lonely, you know. So, yeah. You mentioned in the beginning that you you didn't tell anyone. And do you think that was because you had given up here and there before? And did you sort of think that people would be like, oh, sure, all right. Um, no, it wasn't really that. It was it was more just the shame, and it now I it, I find it difficult to understand because I'm so proud now of yeah. having quit drinking. It seems odd to me that I was so ashamed, but you know, many m- most people I think who quit uh, having you know who quit because they had a, a big issue feel shame, and I think it's because society makes us believe that alcohol is something that you know, that normal people should be able to enjoy without there being a problem. It's only, you know, a small group of alcoholics who who are really sad cases who can't. And, you know, and, and that's what we're taught to believe. So, so if you do find you're starting to have a problem, you blame yourself. You don't blame the yeah. alcohol. You think, God, there's something wrong with me. And, and that's why I didn't feel I could tell anyone. And I also thought, you know, because alcohol was such... I, it was such a big part of my life. I thought no one is going to want to know me if I don't drink. Yeah. You know, they'll all think I'm really boring. No one will invite me to any parties anymore. And I didn't, I also hadn't quite worked out what to say to people. You know, when they said, why don't you drink? I didn't know, or why don't, you know, I didn't know what to, what the answer was. I didn't know how to how to answer that question. So I just didn't tell anyone for ages. I faked it. I used to sit there with a glass of sparkling water pretending it was a gin and tonic or, you know. Just assume you were pregnant. Yeah, well, actually I'm a bit too old for that, sadly. (laughs) But but yeah, they just, uh, you know, they they just thought I was drinking something or I would say I'm on a detox or, you know, um, or something like that. I made a note of when you said in the book that um, it's the only drug that you're made to feel weird for giving up yeah you know if you give up smoking everyone congratulates you you give up sort of give up heroin you know (laughs) that's a wholly good decision but you know and and you know the research that I did it's fascinating you look at there was a study in 2010 by this guy called Professor Nutt um, uh, who was employed by the government to do some research into um, the relative harms of various different drugs because they were looking at what they should put as you know class A what they should put as class B and what they should put as class C and he came back with his findings were so unpopular that they fired him (laughs) (laughs) because because what he ended up saying is that actually you know when you when you look at the harm to the individual alcohol is the fourth most harmful drug there is after crack cocaine heroin and crystal meth you know, and, and that's extraordinary. And when you combine it with the harm to society, because alcohol leads to marriage breakup and violence and, you know, all sorts of, and drunk 
driving and all sorts of other things, actually alcohol is the most dangerous drug in society, yeah. which is, you know, again, something that people just can't get their heads around because most people don't really see alcohol as a drug at all. Um, you can't so, fire the guy for presenting the facts just because you don't like the outcome. No, exactly. Well, you, if you remember, there was a big Ferrari because he said that actually, you know, based on his findings, you should legalise cannabis, that yeah. ecstasy was was actually not terribly nice. harmful yeah. at all, and that what you should really do is crack down on booze. And they were like, oh, that wasn't what we wanted to hear. Yeah. You know, so the government, government makes lots of money yeah, from, the, from tax on alcohol. Politics, isn't it's it? the money, isn't it? It's mm. fucking crazy. So I, I'm sober. I don't drink at all. And I've never had a problem with drinking. I've never been an alcoholic and I've always drunk very, very little. Mm. And it was that that made me stop was, was realizing, okay, if I just drink pure alcohol, that would kill me in an instant. Mm. And so what we do is we take this poison, we dilute it slightly. Well, like severely, in fact, like we dilute it down to a, a kind of level that we can just get fucked on. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. What am mm. I putting into my body? And I don't know if you've read the New York Times report recently that came out that was saying there's this thing about we saying, oh, like having a glass of wine can be really healthy. Apparently, like, according to this new report, like no alcohol is good for you. No, no, it's not. And, you know, it also is it's a carcinogen, you know, so alcohol causes at least... Um, seven or eight different types of cancer. Um, one of the big ones being breast cancer, which I got, and I am entirely convinced that uh, you know it was related to the amount of booze I was drinking. And uh, you know, it's if alcohol came onto the market now, there is no way it would be legalized. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, we I used to think that the more you spent on a bottle of wine, the, the you know, the the less it would make me feel like I I was a I was, not, you know, I had some sort of uh, alcohol issue because it made me a sort of connoisseur and not like a common old garden lush, you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, we spend, you know, the marketing companies spend fortunes making this stuff look really appealing and taste as good as possible. When, as you say, actually, it's just a, a regular, you know, to uh, addictive toxin. And, uh, you know, if, it, if you could only drink alcohol in, you know, in clear bottles and it, it looked and tasted like methylated spirits, nobody would do it. But, uh, but it's because we've, you know, over the generations, we've, we've glamorized it so much. It sort of, it doesn't feel like we're, we're, we're drinking something, you know, something toxic. So, yeah. So interesting. Uh, I don't think I've ever actually said on the podcast before that I'm sober. I don't think I've ever mentioned it. No, probably not. Uh, but I guess it's not something that I really hang my personality on. I'm I, like, I have no problem in a social situation just having a water and because mm. I, I don't drink anything other than water. So I won't have a Coke or I mean, maybe once in a blue moon, I'll have a Coke. But I mean, again, a ginger beer once a year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've kind of replaced my my annual because well, I used to have a drink once a year. Now I just have a ginger beer once a year. You know, I mean, th <laughs> things things are changing now, though. So, you know, in in when I first quit drinking, which is nearly five years ago now, you know, everybody assumed if you didn't drink that it was because you had a problem. Mm. You know, it was very rare to come across somebody who didn't drink for 
positive lifestyle reasons. Whereas now it's particularly amongst millennials, it's so much more common. So um, under 25s, you know, they, they estimate between a quarter and a third of under 25s don't drink at all. Um, and, you know, so it's seen now as, you know, much in the same way that you might give up dairy or give up gluten or give up meat. You know, giving up alcohol is just another thing that you might do for positive lifestyle reasons and not just because you have a disease or an issue or an addiction or whatever. So, you know, so things are changing. But uh, but in my day, it was sort of, you know, it's very much seen as as, you know, a weird thing to do. I do some mentoring for DNAD and mm. uh, one of their classes that they had in, I was talking to someone there who, I don't know how the topic came up, but she was very kind of tentatively feeling out the room sort of thing of saying, I think I may, may give up drinking. Um, I don't think it's really, I'm not, I'm not that productive. I'm not very creative when mm. I, like I notice cause it, cause it does steal your weekend. If yeah. you go out, I think like, especially in the UK binge culture is so huge. And then when you go out on the weekend, if you had planned to be painting on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday, it just, it just doesn't mm. happen. And so I was like hugely supportive. I was like, oh yeah, I don't drink. Like, yeah, no, that's that's super cool. I think you should definitely like see where it goes because I don't think there should be a stigma around not drinking. No. It should be it should be cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I creativity and, and alcohol, I, I think there used to be an assumption that those two things went together and actually alcohol steals your creativity. I think, um, there's a study that was done ages ago and there's a company, I don't know where they're based, I feel like it's in Scandinavia or something. Mm. And they studied creativity and alcohol and they found that, yes, creativity increased, but only for the teeny tiniest amount of beer. So they would have like a bottle and on the side was a little mark that said, <laughs> by the time you hit here, your creativity is at its peak. Yeah. No, I, I would that, never be able to stop at that line. No, That's and, <laughs> and no, no one can. Yeah. And but it was, I think it was a bit to like prove a point of like this, yes, it does increase it, but only if you have like a thimbles full. Yeah. Um, uh, but anything after that, you're just downhill from there. Oh, that's really interesting because you know when I quit drinking, I I, I discovered rediscovered mornings as well. So <laughs> yeah, you know great, now you know I because I, I used to I used to always feel I never really had chronic hangovers because I think I was so used to drinking quite a lot that that it didn't you know I didn't notice it. But you know I always felt under par until at least eleven o'clock in the morning, and um, and now I bounce out of bed at 5.30 um, or possibly even five o'clock every morning. And and I write first thing in the morning when, you know, everything is really quiet, when I the day hasn't sort of got in the way. And, you know, I get hours of work done in the days when I would have just been lying around feeling a bit miserable about life. And, mm. you know, it, it really does allow you to fire on all cylinders. I think a lot of that comes down to hydration as well because mm. I find like in the evenings I make sure I don't have any caffeine and I do drink in the evenings like sometimes well probably like half half the days but like what, if I go to bed and have a big glass of water or have a glass of water when I wake up you'll you feel so much better as if you just get home from work and you've probably been drinking coffee at work you get home you start drinking wine and then you drink wine until you go to bed mm. you haven't actually had any water for like hours and hours and hours and hours and then you sleep for eight hours you might not have had any water for the past like 16 hours. Yeah, good and point. And then you realise that 
that's why you feel shit when you wake up because yeah. you've not actually drank. Well, a lot anything. of hangovers is about dehydration. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So I think yeah, that's why people say try and do. Oh, I'll have one glass of water and then one glass of alcohol. Yeah. That never happens. No, it doesn't. No. Well, it happens until you get so drunk that you forget the water. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I remember being but, a, being at uni and thinking it, was, it wasn't because I felt like I was an alcoholic. It felt it was because I had no money. Um, I was like, well, when I get so drunk, I don't need another one, but. I still feel like I need something in my hand to be drinking. Yeah. So I was like, what I'm going to do is when I'm out, I'm going to get to a stage when I feel like I'm drunk. And then when I go to the bar, I'm going to get a Coke. And yes, yeah, so I remember thinking like, I've absolutely hacked the system here. I'm going to get to a certain point. I'm going to get a Coke. And then when I got a Coke and I was like, this just tastes weird and <laughs> never did it again. But um, um, the first time I was like, I, 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 I was, was constantly like, no, trying to hack the before. system. <laughs> and then I yeah. eventually worked out I couldn't. So um, obviously you've been through it now so you now don't drink what would you say to someone who's in that situation where they're maybe thinking about not drinking anymore or kind of reducing and that stigma of what other people are going to say and how that makes them like feel towards you I think that's one of the hardest things uh, other other people is you know when, when people say to me what's the hardest thing about quitting drinking my answer is always other people and it's you know it's other people's preconceptions but actually you know what I've realized since is that People, the only people who care whether you're drinking or not are other people who have an issue with alcohol. Yeah. Anyone who doesn't have their own issues with alcohol doesn't really give a damn. In fact, they probably don't even notice. And, you know, that was a real shock to me when I realised that there were some people who just didn't care. Um, and that probably is the majority of people. I guess part of the problem is if you're a big drinker, you've probably surrounded yourself with other big drinkers. You know, and part of the reason, part of the way I chose my friends was on how much they drank. So, you know, if I came across somebody who didn't drink much, you know, I would think, oh, they're not somebody like me. So it was my own fault. You know, I just over the years, I surrounded myself by more and more and more big drinkers. Um, so, you know, the, the, I think to answer your question, you know, I would tell them that most people don't care um, and that actually, you know, over time you will find more and more, you know, friends out there who don't care about alcohol. And, you know, I feel awful now about the people I've written off as being not my type just because they weren't addicts. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting to think that, like, although we're talking about alcohol here, this applies to so many things. People just don't want to see other people change if it makes them feel like, oh, this isn't like me. They're mm. going to do something that isn't what we normally do. And I think we talk to a lot of people who are like thinking of like starting, say they want to leave their job doing something that's like a safe, a safe role, for example, to go a bit more crazy and be a creative. Mm. And other people will be like, oh, you don't want to do that and kind of like shut them down. But it, there seems so many similarities here of like just yeah. other people's opinions of like... Well, it's, it's when you force people to look at their own behaviour and they don't like that. So, you know, if, if I tell somebody I don't drink, their immediate, and they, their immediate reaction is to, to think, oh God, does this mean that I have a problem? And are they going to be, is Claire going to be judging me? And, you know, should I be drinking in front of her? And what do I say? And is this going to be terribly awkward? And, you know, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it forces you to look at your own life and your own decisions in a way that people find very uncomfortable. And you're right, that's the same with any big change. You know, it makes, it makes people think, you know, so if you told somebody that you were quitting your corporate job to, to, you know, to do something much more creative, anyone still in the corporate job is going to be thinking, oh God, you know, should I do the same? And they're going to feel more uncomfortable about their own life decisions. And, 
you know, nobody wants to be in that position. So, yeah, so it's hard. If we went back and spoke to you 20 years ago and we said, you're going to be a writer, what would you have said? Oh, that was always my big dream. It was. Yeah, yeah, it was always my dream. And, you know, it's funny, I... I was so worried when I quit drinking, I was so worried about all the things I would lose. And what I didn't think about, what I didn't see was possible is all the things I would actually gain, you know, and my life was, my life had become really, really small. And actually listening to your podcast about fear, you know, I was really anxious all the time. And I didn't realise then that alcohol and anxiety are really bound up together. So, you know, we think alcohol makes us braver, but actually when you get used to using alcohol to quench any form of fear, it actually makes you more anxious because you become unused to dealing with stuff without a prop, if you see what I mean. So so I became increasingly anxious and my life got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until, you know, I was I used to feel anxious about talking to somebody on the phone that I'd never met. You know, that would sort of that would make me feel really nervous. Whereas, you know, I'd I'd been really brave when I was younger. I traveled all over the world by myself and I'd, you know, I'd I'd given talks in front of hundreds of people and I'd done all sorts of stuff. And suddenly I found, you know, even the smallest things really, I say suddenly, it crept up on me, (laughs) but I found even the smallest things really hard. And, you know, when I quit drinking and I started getting used to dealing with stuff without that prop, you know, I became braver and braver and braver. And, um, you know, I, instead of thinking there's no point in me trying to write a novel because nobody's ever going to read it and nobody will ever buy it and it will be a complete waste of time. I've been telling myself that for 20 years. I thought, fuck it. You know, I mean, it's sort of, what have I got to lose? And uh, so I wrote a novel and I sold it and uh, at auction and it's being published in 29 different countries. And I never, ever would have believed that was possible. So... You know, my life has transformed in a way that, you know, I, I thought it was going to get worse. You know, that's the ironic thing. I thought, I thought, you know, this is my punishment for having overdone it for so long. My punishment is to spend the rest of my life feeling a bit miserable and not being able to join in. And instead, my life is 100% better than it was. That's amazing. I love it. What a, <laughs> what a, what a story. Like the heroes, talk about the hero's journey. Yeah. That's like literally it. They, like you've lived the hero's journey of like overcoming the dragon and it's amazing. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, I think when you quit drinking, it allows you to be more responsive to opportunities as well. So, you know, every I've found, found since then just things of one thing has led to the next thing has led to the next thing. So the blog led to me writing my memoir, The, the Sober Diaries, and that led me to doing a, a, a novel writing course and that led to writing the novel. And it's just, you know, you become more open to the stuff that's out there and more able to just follow follow your instincts, I guess. You know, I think I quashed all my instincts for sort of, you know, and my and my bravery and everything for a long time. And, you know, quitting drinking was like taking the lid off, you know. So, yeah, let the genie out of the bottle. Be more brave. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned the your new novel there. Um, when When's that coming out? Well, funny enough, it comes out in the US first. So it comes out in the US on the 4th of February and it comes out in the UK on the 2nd of April. 
exciting. What's it about? So it's it's about funny enough, it's sort of inspired by my own my own experiences. So of course. as things so often yeah. are. So, you know, when I when I published the sober diaries, I um what I discovered is that when you tell the real truth about what's going on in your life, amazing, you know, magic can happen and it can change other people's lives for the better. And, you know, I spent, I guess for years, my life was not at all what it seemed. So, you know, if you looked at my life on social media, it looked fairly perfect and underneath it was all falling apart, but nobody could see that. And I started thinking, God, everybody does that to an extent. Everybody lies about their lives to an extent. And what would happen if we all told the truth? What would happen if we showed people what was really going on in our lives? And that led to my novel, which is called The Authenticity Project. And it's uh, it's about a green notebook, which um, um, an artist called Julian Jessup, who's 79 years old and is very, very lonely, writes on the front of this green notebook, The Authenticity Project. And he writes inside everybody lies about their lives and what would happen if you told the truth instead. And he tells the truth about his life and he leaves this book in a cafe on the Fulham Road. And it's picked up by the owner of the cafe who reads his story and she writes her own truth. And uh, she is 37 and is desperate to have a baby despite being a real feminist. And she finds those things tricky to reconcile. And she writes her truth in this book and she leaves it somewhere it's picked up by someone else. So this book is passed between six people and they all tell their truths and they all change each other's lives in amazing ways. So it's a feel good novel. And uh, and it's all about the difference between what you see and the truth. And uh, actually, there's a quote in the front, which is really I, I've always loved. It's um, it's by Leonard Cohen, and uh, it's from the song uh, anthem, and it goes: "I ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in." And that's I think what my book is about. It's about how it's the cracks that let the light in. You know those things that make us that we think make us imperfect are actually what make us unique and lovable and interesting. They absolutely are. Um, This has been amazing. Where can people find you online? Uh, On Twitter, I'm at cpooleywriter. And on Instagram, I'm at Claire underscore Pooley. So, and also if uh, on Facebook, I have a Facebook page called Sober Mummy, which I put, uh, oh, and there's my blog, Mummy Was a Secret Drinker. So... Amazing. Thanks for coming out. It's a pleasure. Thank you, guys. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show, so we need your help to grow the community and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever. If you can leave us an iTunes review, it makes a huge difference. See ya.